0: One of the major areas of controversy between members of the Army Reserves and their regular Army trainers is haircuts. The Reservists consider themselves civilians, which they are most of the time, and resent having to cut their hair short. Master Sergeant Harley Kaiser of the 542nd USAR School addressed himself to this problem when he was working with a group of reserved non-commissioned officers. As an old-time regular army master sergeant, he might have been expected to yell at his troops and threaten them. Instead, he chose to make his point indirectly. Gentlemen, he started, you are leaders. You will be most effective when you lead by example. You must be the example for your men to follow. You know what the army regulations say about haircuts. I'm going to get my hair cut today, although it's still much shorter than some of yours. You look at yourselves in the mirror. If you feel you need a haircut to be a good example, we'll arrange a time for you to visit the post barber shop. The result was predictable. Several of the candidates did look in the mirror and went to the barber shop that afternoon and received regulation haircuts. Sergeant Kaiser commented the next morning that he already could see the development of leadership qualities in some of the members of the squad. On March 8, 1887, the eloquent Henry Ward Beecher died. The following Sunday, Lyman Abbott was invited to speak in the pulpit left silent by Beecher's passing. Eager to do his best, he wrote, rewrote, and polished his sermon with the meticulous care of a Flaubert. Then he read it to his wife. It was poor, as most written speeches are. She might have said, if she had less judgment, Lyman, that's terrible. That will never do. You'll put people to sleep. It reads like an encyclopedia. You ought to know better than that after all the years you've been preaching. For heaven's sake, why don't you talk like a human being? Why don't you act natural? You'll disgrace yourself if you ever read that stuff. That's what she might have said. And if she had, you know what would have happened. And she knew, too. So she merely remarked that it would make an excellent article for the North American Review. In other words, she praised it, and at the same time subtly suggested that it wouldn't do as a speech. Lyman Abbott saw the point, tore up his carefully prepared manuscript, and preached without even using notes. An effective way to correct others' mistakes is Principle 2. Call attention to people's mistakes indirectly. Chapter 3. Talk about your own mistakes first. My niece, Josephine Carnegie, had come to New York to be my secretary. She was 19 had graduated from high school three years previously, and her business experience was a trifle more than zero. She became one of the most proficient secretaries west of Suez, but in the beginning she was, well, susceptible to improvement. One day I started to criticize her. I said to myself, Just a minute, Dale Carnegie, just a minute. You are twice as old as Josephine. You have had 10,000 times as much business experience. How can you possibly expect her to have your viewpoint, your judgment, your initiative, mediocre though they may be? And just a minute, Dale, what were you doing at nineteen? Remember the asinine mistakes and blunders you made? Remember the time you did this and that? After thinking the matter over, honestly and impartially, I concluded that Josephine's batting average at nineteen was better than mine had been, And that, I'm sorry to confess, isn't paying Josephine much of a compliment. So after that, when I wanted to call Josephine's attention to a mistake, I used to begin by saying, You've made a mistake, Josephine, but the Lord knows it's no worse than many I have made. You were not born with judgment. That comes only with experience. And you are better than I was at your age. I've been guilty of so many stupid, silly things myself. I have very little inclination to criticize you or anyone, but don't you think it would have been wise if you had done so-and-so? It isn't nearly so difficult to listen to a recital of your faults if the person criticizing begins by humbly admitting that he, too, is far from impeccable. E.G. Dillastone, an engineer in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada, was having problems with his new secretary. Letters he dictated were coming to his desk for signature with two or three spelling mistakes per page. Mr. Dillistone reported how he handled this. Like many engineers, I've not been noted for my excellent English or spelling. For years, I've kept a little black thumb-index book for words I had trouble spelling. When it became apparent that merely pointing out the errors was not going to cause my secretary to do more proofreading and dictionary work, I resolved to take another approach. When the next letter came to my attention that had errors in it, I sat down with the typist and I said, ''Somehow this word doesn't look right. It's one of the words I've always had trouble with. That's the reason I started this little spelling book of mine. I opened the book to the appropriate page. Yes, here it is. I'm very conscious of my spelling now because people do judge us by our letters, and misspelling makes us look less professional.'' I don't know whether she copied my system or not, but since that conversation, her frequency of spelling errors has been significantly reduced. The polished Prince Bernhard von Bülow learned the sharp necessity of doing this back in 1909. Von Bülow was then the imperial chancellor of Germany, and on the throne sat Wilhelm II, Wilhelm the haughty, Wilhelm the arrogant, Wilhelm the last of the German kaisers building an army and navy that he boasted could whip their weight in wildcats. Then an astonishing thing happened. The Kaiser said things, incredible things, things that rocked the continent and started a series of explosions heard around the world. To make matters infinitely worse, the Kaiser made silly, egotistical, absurd announcements in public. He made them while he was a guest in England, and he gave his royal permission to have them printed in the Daily Telegraph. For example, he declared that he was the only German who felt friendly toward the English, that he was constructing a navy against the menace of Japan, that he and he alone had saved England from being humbled in the dust by Russia and France, that it had been his campaign plan that enabled England's Lord Roberts to defeat the Boers in South Africa, and so on. No other such amazing words had ever fallen from the lips of a European king in peacetime within a hundred years. The entire continent buzzed with the fury of a hornet's nest. England was incensed. German statesmen were aghast. And in the midst of all this consternation, the Kaiser became panicky and suggested to Prince von Bulow, the imperial chancellor, that he take the blame. Yes, he wanted von Bülow to announce that it was all his responsibility that he had advised his monarch to say these incredible things. But, Your Majesty, von Bülow protested, it seems to me utterly impossible that anybody, either in Germany or England, could suppose me capable of having advised Your Majesty to say such things. The moment those words were out of von Bülow's mouth, he realized he had made a grave mistake. The Kaiser blew up. You consider me a donkey, he shouted, capable of blunders you yourself could never have committed. Von Bulow knew that he ought to have praised before he condemned, but since that was too late, he did the next best thing. He praised after he had criticized, and it worked a miracle. I am far from suggesting that, he answered respectfully. Your Majesty surpasses me in many respects, not only, of course, in naval and military knowledge, but above all in natural science. I have often listened in admiration when Your Majesty explained the barometer, or wireless telegraphy, or the Rentgen rays. I am shamefully ignorant of all branches of natural science, have no notion of chemistry, of physics, and am quite incapable of explaining the simplest of natural phenomena. But, von Bülow continued, in compensation I possess some historical knowledge, and perhaps certain qualities useful in politics, especially diplomacy.' The kaiser beamed. Von Puylo had praised him. Von Puylo had exalted him and humbled himself. The kaiser could forgive anything after that. Haven't I always told you, he exclaimed with enthusiasm, that we complete one another famously? We should stick together, and we will. He shook hands with Von Puylo, not once, but several times and later in the day he waxed so enthusiastic that he exclaimed with doubled fists, If anyone says anything to me against Prince von Bülow, I shall punch him in the nose. Von Bülow saved himself in time, but, canny diplomat that he was, he nevertheless had made one error. He should have begun by talking about his own shortcomings and Wilhelm's superiority, not by intimating that the Kaiser was a half-wit in need of a guardian. If a few sentences, humbling oneself and praising the other party, can turn a haughty, insulted Kaiser into a staunch friend, imagine what humility and praise can do for you and me in our daily contacts. Rightfully used, they will work veritable miracles in human relations. Admitting one's own mistakes, even when one hasn't corrected them, can help convince somebody to change his behavior. This was illustrated more recently by Clarence Zerhusen of Timonia, Maryland, when he discovered his 15-year-old son was experimenting with cigarettes. Naturally, I didn't want David to smoke, Mr. Zerhusen told us, but his mother and I smoked cigarettes. We were giving him a bad example all the time. I explained to Dave how I started smoking at about his age and how the nicotine had gotten the best of me, and now it was nearly impossible for me to stop. I reminded him how irritating my cough was and how he had been after me to give up cigarettes not many years before. I didn't exhort him to stop or make threats or warn him about their dangers. All I did was point out how I was hooked on cigarettes and what it had meant to me. He thought about it for a while and decided he wouldn't smoke until he had graduated from high school. As the years went by, David never did start smoking and has no intention of ever doing so. As a result of that conversation, I made the decision to stop smoking cigarettes myself, and with the support of my family, I have succeeded. A good leader follows this principle. Principle 3. Talk about your own mistakes before criticizing the other person. Chapter 4. No One Likes to Take Orders I once had the pleasure of dining with Miss Ida Tarbell, the Dean of American Biographers. When I told her I was writing this book, we began discussing this all-important subject of getting along with people, and she told me that while she was writing her biography of Owen D. Young, she interviewed a man who had sat for three years in the same office with Mr. Young. This man declared that during all that time, he had never heard Owen D. Young give a direct order to anyone. He always gave suggestions, not orders. Owen D. Young never said, for example... Do this, or do that, or don't do this, don't do that. He would say, You might consider this, or do you think that would work? Frequently, he would say, after he had dictated a letter, What do you think of this? In looking over a letter of one of his assistants, he would say, Maybe if we were to phrase it this way, it would be better. He always gave people the opportunity to do things themselves, He never told his assistants to do things. He let them do them, let them learn from their mistakes. A technique like that makes it easy for a person to correct errors. A technique like that saves a person's pride and gives him or her a feeling of importance. It encourages cooperation instead of rebellion. Resentment caused by a brash order may last a long time, even if the order was given to correct an obviously bad situation. Dan Santarelli. A teacher at a vocational school in Wyoming, Pennsylvania, told one of our classes how one of his students had blocked the entranceway to one of the school's shops by illegally parking his car in it. One of the other instructors stormed into the classroom and asked in an arrogant tone, whose car is blocking the driveway? When the student who owned the car responded, the instructor screamed, move that car and move it right now or I'll wrap a chain around it and drag it out of there. Now that student was wrong. The car should not have been parked there. But from that day on, not only did that student resent the instructor's action, but all the students in the class did everything they could to give the instructor a hard time and make his job unpleasant. How could he have handled it differently? If he had asked in a friendly way, whose car's in the driveway, and then suggested that if it were moved, other cars could get in and out, the student would have gladly moved it, and neither he nor his classmates would have been upset and resentful. Asking questions not only makes an order more palatable, it often stimulates the creativity of the persons who you ask. People are more likely to accept an order if they have had a part in the decision that caused the order to be issued. When Ian MacDonald of Johannesburg, South Africa, the general manager of a small manufacturing plant specializing in precision machine parts, had the opportunity to accept a very large order, he was convinced that he would not meet the promised delivery date. The work already scheduled in the shop and the short completion time needed for this order made it seem impossible for him to accept the order. Instead of pushing his people to accelerate their work and rush the order through, he called everybody together, explained the situation to them, and told them how much it would mean to the company and to them if they could make it possible to produce the order on time. Then he started asking questions. Is there anything we can do to handle this order? Can anyone think of different ways to process it through the shop that will make it possible to take the order? Is there any way to adjust our hours or personnel assignments that would help? The employees came up with many ideas and insisted that he take the order. They approached it with a we-can-do-it attitude, and the order was accepted, produced, and delivered on time. An effective leader will use Principle 4. Ask questions instead of giving direct orders. Chapter 5. Let the other person save face. Years ago, the General Electric Company was faced with the delicate task of removing Charles Steinmetz from the head of a department. Steinmetz, a genius of the first magnitude when it came to electricity, was a failure as the head of the calculating department. Yet the company didn't dare offend the man. He was indispensable and highly sensitive so they gave him a new title. They made him consulting engineer of the General Electric Company, a new title for work he was already doing, and let someone else head up the department. Steinmetz was happy. So were the officers of GE. They had gently maneuvered their most temperamental star, and they had done it without a storm, by letting him save face. Letting one save face, how important, how vitally important that is and how few of us ever stop to think of it. We ride roughshod over the feelings of others, getting our own way, finding fault, issuing threats, criticizing a child or an employee in front of others without even considering the hurt to the other person's pride, whereas a few minutes thought, a considerate word or two, a genuine understanding of the other person's attitude would go so far toward alleviating the sting. Let's remember that the next time we're faced with the distasteful necessity of discharging or reprimanding an employee. Firing employees is not much fun. Getting fired is even less fun. I'm quoting now from a letter written to me by Marshall A. Granger, a certified public accountant. Our business is mostly seasonal. Therefore, we have to let a lot of people go after the income tax rush is over. It's a byword in our profession that no one enjoys wielding the axe. Consequently, the custom is developed of getting it over as soon as possible, and usually in the following way. Uh, Sit down, Mr. Smith. The season's over. We don't seem to see any more assignments for you. Of course, you understand you were only employed for the busy season anyhow, etc., etc. The effect on these people is one of disappointment and a feeling of being let down. Most of them are in the accounting field for life, and they retain no particular love for the firm that drops them so casually. I recently decided to let our seasonal personnel go with a little more tact and consideration, so I call each one in only after carefully thinking over his or her work during the winter. And I've said something like this, Mr. Smith, you've done a fine job, if he has, At that time, we sent you to Newark. You had a tough assignment. You were on the spot, but you came through with flying colors, and we want you to know the firm is proud of you. You've got the stuff. You're going a long way wherever you're working. This firm believes in you and is rooting for you, and we don't want you to forget it. Effect? The people go away feeling a lot better about being fired. They don't feel let down. They know if we had work for them, we'd keep them on, And when we need them again, they come to us with a keen personal affection. At one session of our course, two class members discussed the negative effects of fault-finding versus the positive effects of letting the other person save face. Fred Clark of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, told of an incident that occurred in his company. At one of our production meetings, a vice president was asking very pointed questions of one of our production supervisors regarding a production process. His tone of voice was aggressive and aimed at pointing out faulty performance on the part of the supervisor. Not wanting to be embarrassed in front of his peers, the supervisor was evasive in his responses. This caused the vice president to lose his temper, berate the supervisor and accuse him of lying, Any working relationship that might have existed prior to this encounter was destroyed in a few brief moments. This supervisor, who was basically a good worker, was useless to our company from that time on. A few months later, he left our firm and went to work for a competitor, where I understand he's doing a fine job. Another class member, Anna Mazone, related how a similar incident had occurred at her job, but what a difference in approach and results. Ms. Mazzone, a marketing specialist for a food packer, was given her first major assignment, the test marketing of a new product. She told the class, When the results of the test came in, I was devastated. I'd made a serious error in my planning, and the entire test had to be done all over again. To make this worse, I had no time to discuss it with my boss before the meeting in which I was to make my report on the project. When I was called on to give the report, I was shaking with fright. I had all I could do to keep from breaking down, but I resolved I would not cry and have all those men make remarks about women not being able to handle a management job because they're too emotional. I made my report briefly and stated that due to an error, I would repeat the study before the next meeting. I sat down, expecting my boss to blow up. Instead, he thanked me for my work, and remarked that it was not unusual for a person to make an error on a new project, and that he had confidence that the repeat survey would be accurate and meaningful to the company. He assured me, in front of all my colleagues, that he had faith in me, and knew I had done my best, and that my lack of experience, not my lack of ability, was the reason for the failure. I left that meeting with my head up in the air, and with the determination that I would never let that boss of mine down again. Even if we are right and the other person is definitely wrong, we only destroy ego by causing someone to lose face. The legendary French aviation pioneer and author Antoine de Saint-Exupery wrote, I have no right to say or do anything that diminishes a man in his own eyes. What matters is not what I think of him, but what he thinks of himself. Hurting a man in his dignity is a crime. A real leader will always follow Principle 5. Let the other person save face. Chapter 6. How to Spur People on to Success Pete Barlow was an old friend of mine. He had a dog and pony act and spent his life traveling with circuses and vaudeville shows. I loved to watch Pete train new dogs for his act. I noticed that the moment a dog showed the slightest improvement... Pete patted and praised him and gave him meat and made a great to-do about it. That's nothing new. Animal trainers have been using that same technique for centuries. Why, I wonder, don't we use the same common sense when trying to change people that we use when trying to change dogs? Why don't we use meat instead of a whip? Why don't we use praise instead of condemnation? Let us praise even the slightest improvement. That inspires the other person to keep on improving. In his book, I Ain't Much, Baby, But I'm All I Got, the psychologist Jess Lair comments, Praise is like sunlight to the warm human spirit. We cannot flower and grow without it, and yet while most of us are only too ready to apply to others the cold wind of criticism, we are somehow reluctant to give our fellow the warm sunshine of praise. I can look back at my own life and see where a few words of praise have sharply changed my entire future. Can't you say the same thing about your life? History is replete with striking illustrations of the sheer witchery of praise. For example, many years ago, a boy of ten was working in a factory in Naples. He longed to be a singer, but his first teacher discouraged him. You can't sing, he said. You haven't any voice at all. It sounds like the wind in the shutters. But his mother, a poor peasant woman, put her arms about him and praised him and told him she knew he could sing, she could already see an improvement, and she went barefoot in order to save money to pay for his music lessons. That peasant mother's praise and encouragement changed that boy's life. His name was Enrico Caruso, and he became the greatest and most famous opera singer of his age. In the early 19th century, a young man in London aspired to be a writer, but everything seemed to be against him. He had never been able to attend school more than four years. His father had been flung in jail because he couldn't pay his debts, and this young man often knew the pangs of hunger. Finally, he got a job pasting labels on bottles of blacking in a rat-infested warehouse, and he slept at night in a dismal attic room with two other boys, gutter snipes from the slums of London. He had so little confidence in his ability to write that he sneaked out and mailed his first manuscript in the dead of night, so nobody would laugh at him. Story after story was refused. Finally, the great day came when one was accepted. True, he wasn't paid a shilling for it, but one editor had praised him. One editor had given him recognition. He was so thrilled that he wandered aimlessly around the streets with tears rolling down his cheeks. The praise The recognition that he received through getting one story in print changed his whole life, for if it hadn't been for that encouragement, he might have spent his entire life working in rat-infested factories. You may have heard of that boy. His name was Charles Dickens. Another boy in London made his living as a clerk in a dry goods store. He had to get up at five o'clock, sweep out the store, and slave for fourteen hours a day. It was sheer drudgery, and he despised it. After two years, he could stand it no longer. So he got up one morning and, without waiting for breakfast, tramped fifteen miles to talk to his mother, who was working as a housekeeper. He was frantic. He pleaded with her. He wept. He swore he would kill himself if he had to remain in the shop any longer. Then he wrote a long, pathetic letter to his old schoolmaster, declaring that he was heartbroken, that he no longer wanted to live. His old schoolmaster gave him a little praise— and assured him that he really was very intelligent and fitted for finer things, and offered him a job as a teacher. That praise changed the future of that boy and made a lasting impression on the history of English literature, for that boy went on to write innumerable best-selling books and made over a million dollars with his pen. You've probably heard of him. His name, H.G. Wells. Use of praise instead of criticism is the basic concept of B.F. Skinner's teachings. This great contemporary psychologist has shown by experiment with animals and with humans that when criticism is minimized and praise emphasized, the good things people do will be reinforced and the poorer things will atrophy for lack of attention. John Ringlespaw of Rocky Mount, North Carolina, used this in dealing with his children. It seemed that, as in so many families... Mother and Dad's chief form of communication with the children was yelling at them, and as in so many cases, the children became a little worse rather than better after every session, and so did the parents. There seemed to be no end in sight for this problem. Mr. Ringlespaw determined to use some of the principles he was learning in our course to solve this situation. He reported, We decided to try to praise instead of harping on their faults, It wasn't easy when all we could see were the negative things they were doing. It was really tough to find things to praise. We managed to find something, and within the first day or two, some of the really upsetting things they were doing quit happening. Then some of their other faults began to disappear. They began capitalizing on the praise we were giving them. They even began going out of their way to do things right. Neither of us could believe it. Of course, it didn't last forever, but the norm reached after things leveled off was so much better. It was no longer necessary to react the way we used to. The children were doing far more right things than wrong ones. All of this was the result of praising the slightest improvement in the children rather than condemning everything they did wrong. This works on the job, too. Keith Roper of Woodland Hills, California, applied this principle to a situation in his company. Some material came to him in his print shop, which was of exceptionally high quality. The printer who had done this job was a new employee who had been having difficulty adjusting to the job. His supervisor was upset about what he considered a negative attitude and was seriously thinking of terminating his services. When Mr. Roper was informed of this situation, he personally went over to the print shop and had a talk with the young man. He told him how pleased he was with the work he'd just received, and pointed out it was the best work he had seen produced in that shop for some time. He pointed out exactly why it was superior and how important the young man's contribution was to the company. Do you think this affected that young printer's attitude toward the company? Within days, there was a complete turnabout. He told several of his co-workers about the conversation and how someone in the company really appreciated good work, and from that day on, he was a loyal and dedicated worker. What Mr. Roper did was not just flatter the young printer and say, you're good, he specifically pointed out how his work was superior. Because he had singled out a specific accomplishment, rather than just making general flattering remarks, his praise became much more meaningful to the person to whom it was given. Everybody likes to be praised, but when praise is specific, it comes across as sincere, not something the other person may be saying just to make one feel good. Remember. We all crave appreciation and recognition and will do almost anything to get it. But nobody wants insincerity. Nobody wants flattery. Let me repeat. The principles taught in this book will work only when they come from the heart. I'm not advocating a bag of tricks. I'm talking about a new way of life. Talk about changing people. If you and I will inspire the people with whom we come in contact to a realization of the hidden treasures they possess... We can do far more than change people. We can literally transform them. Exaggeration? Then listen to these sage words from William James, one of the most distinguished psychologists and philosophers America has ever produced. Compared with what we ought to be, we are only half awake. We are making use of only a small part of our physical and mental resources. Stating the thing broadly, the human individual thus lives far within his limits. He possesses powers of various sorts which he habitually fails to use. Yes, you possess powers of various sorts which you habitually fail to use. And one of these powers you are probably not using to the fullest extent is your magic ability to praise people and inspire them with a realization of their latent possibilities. Abilities wither under criticism, they blossom under encouragement. To become a more effective leader of people, apply Principle 6. Praise the slightest improvement, and praise every improvement. Be hearty in your approbation, and lavish in your praise. Chapter 7. Give a Dog a Good Name. What do you do when a person who's been a good worker begins to turn in shoddy work? You can fire him or her, but that really doesn't solve anything. You can berate the worker, but this usually causes resentment. Henry Henke, a service manager for a large truck dealership in Lowell, Indiana, had a mechanic whose work had become less than satisfactory. Instead of bawling him out or threatening him, Mr. Henke called him into his office and had a heart-to-heart talk with him. "'Bill,' he said, "'you're a fine mechanic. "'You've been in this line of work for a good number of years.' You've prepared many vehicles to the customer's satisfaction. In fact, we've had a number of compliments about the good work you've done. Yet of late, the time you take to complete each job has been increasing, and your work has not been up to your own old standards. Because you've been such an outstanding mechanic in the past, I felt sure you'd want to know that I'm not happy with the situation. Perhaps jointly we could find some way to correct the problem. Bill responded that he hadn't realized he'd been falling down in his duties and assured his boss that the work he was getting was not out of his range of expertise and that he would try to improve in the future. Did he do it? You can be sure he did. He once again became a fast and thorough mechanic. With that reputation Mr. Henke had given him to live up to, how could he do anything else but turn out work comparable to that which he had done in the past? The average person, said Samuel Vauclane, then president of the Baldwin Locomotive Works, can be led readily if you have his or her respect, and if you show that you respect that person for some kind of ability. In short, if you want to improve a person in a certain respect, act as though that particular trait were already one of his or her outstanding characteristics. Shakespeare said, Assume a virtue if you have it not and it might be well to assume and state openly that other people have the virtue you want them to develop. Give them a fine reputation to live up to, and they will make prodigious efforts rather than see you disillusioned. Georgette LeBlanc, in her book Souvenirs, My Life with Metterling, describes the startling transformation of a humble Belgian Cinderella. A servant girl from a neighboring hotel brought my meals, she wrote. She was called Marie the Dishwasher because she had started her career as a scullery assistant. She was a kind of monster, cross-eyed, bandy-legged, poor in flesh and spirit. One day, while she was holding my plate of macaroni in her red hand, I said to her point-blank, Marie, you do not know what treasures are within you. Accustomed to holding back her emotion, Marie waited a few moments, not daring to risk the slightest gesture for fear of a catastrophe. Then she put the dish on the table, sighed, and said ingenuously, Madame, I would never have believed it. She did not doubt, she did not ask a question. She simply went back to the kitchen and repeated what I had said. And such is the force of faith that no one made fun of her. From that day on, she was even given a certain consideration. But the most curious change of all occurred in the humble Marie herself. Believing she was the tabernacle of unseen marvels, she began taking care of her face and body so carefully that her starved youth seemed to bloom and modestly hide her plainness. Two months later, she announced her coming marriage with the nephew of the chef. I'm going to be a lady, she said, and thanked me. A small phrase had changed her entire life. Georgette LeBlanc had given Marie the dishwasher a reputation to live up to, and that reputation had transformed her. Bill Parker, a sales representative for a food company in Daytona Beach, Florida, was very excited about the new line of products his company was introducing, and was upset when the manager of a large independent food market turned down the opportunity to carry it in his store. Bill brooded all day over this rejection and decided to return to the store before he went home that evening and try again. "'Jack,' he said, "'since I left this morning I realized "'I hadn't given you the entire picture of our new line, "'and I'd appreciate some of your time "'to tell you about the points I omitted. "'I've respected the fact that you're always willing to listen "'and are big enough to change your mind "'when the facts warrant a change.' "'Could Jack refuse to give him another hearing?' not with that reputation to live up to. One morning, Dr. Martin Fitzhugh, a dentist in Dublin, Ireland, was shocked when one of his patients pointed out to him that the metal cup holder which she was using to rinse her mouth was not very clean. True, the patient drank from the paper cup, not the holder, but it certainly was not professional to use tarnished equipment. When the patient left, Dr. Fitzhugh retreated to his private office to write a note to Bridget, the charwoman, who came twice a week to clean his office. He wrote, My dear Bridget, I see you so seldom, I thought I'd take the time to thank you for the fine job of cleaning you've been doing. By the way, I thought I'd mention that since two hours twice a week is a very limited amount of time please feel free to work an extra half hour from time to time if you feel the need to do those once-in-a-while things, like polishing the cup holders and the like. I, of course, will pay you for the extra time. The next day, when I walked into my office, Dr. Fitzhugh reported, my desk had been polished to a mirror-like finish, as had my chair, which I nearly slid out of. When I went into the treatment room, I found the shiniest, cleanest, chrome plated cup holder I had ever seen nestled in its receptacle. I had given my charwoman a fine reputation to live up to, and because of this small gesture, she outperformed all her past efforts. How much additional time did she spend on this? That's right, none at all. There's an old saying, give a dog a bad name and you may as well hang him, but give him a good name and see what happens. When Mrs. Ruth Hopkins, a fourth-grade teacher in Brooklyn, New York, looked at her class roster the first day of school, her excitement and joy of starting a new term was tinged with anxiety. In her class this year, she would have Tommy T., the school's most notorious bad boy. He was not just mischievous. He caused serious discipline problems in the class, picked fights with the boys, teased the girls, was fresh to the teacher, and seemed to get worse as he grew older. His only redeeming feature was his ability to learn rapidly and master the schoolwork easily. Mrs. Hopkins decided to face the Tommy problem immediately. When she greeted her new students, she made little comments to each of them. "'Rose, that's a pretty dress you're wearing. "'Alicia, I hear you draw beautifully.' And When she came to Tommy, she looked him straight in the eyes and said, "'Tommy, I understand you're a natural leader.' I'm going to depend on you to help me make this class the best class in the fourth grade this year. She reinforced this over the first few days by complimenting Tommy on everything he did and commenting on how this showed what a good student he was. With that reputation to live up to, even a nine-year-old couldn't let her down, and he didn't. If you want to excel in that difficult leadership role of changing the attitude or behavior of others— Use Principle 7. Give the other person a fine reputation to live up to. Chapter 8. Make the fault seem easy to correct. A bachelor friend of mine, about 40 years old, became engaged, and his fiance persuaded him to take some belated dancing lessons. "'The Lord knows I needed dancing lessons,' he confessed as he told me the story, "'for I danced just as I did when I first started 20 years ago.' The first teacher I engaged probably told me the truth. She said I was all wrong. I would just have to forget everything and begin all over again. But that took the heart out of me. I had no incentive to go on, so I quit her. The next teacher may have been lying, but I liked it. She said nonchalantly that my dancing was a bit old-fashioned, perhaps, but the fundamentals were all right, and she assured me I wouldn't have any trouble learning a few new steps. The first teacher had discouraged me by emphasizing my mistakes. This new teacher did the opposite. She kept praising the things I did right and minimizing my errors. You have a natural sense of rhythm, she assured me. You really are a natural-born dancer. And now my common sense tells me that I always have been and always will be a fourth-rate dancer, yet deep in my heart I still like to think that maybe she meant it. To be sure, I was paying her to say it, but why bring that up? At any rate, I know I'm a better dancer than I would have been if she hadn't told me I had a natural sense of rhythm. That encouraged me. That gave me hope. That made me want to improve. Tell your child, your spouse, or your employee that he or she is stupid or dumb at a certain thing, has no gift for it, and is doing it all wrong, and you have destroyed almost every incentive to try to improve. But use the opposite technique. Be liberal with your encouragement. Make the thing seem easy to do. Let the other person know that you have faith in his ability to do it, that he has an undeveloped flair for it, and he will practice until the dawn comes in the window in order to excel. Lowell Thomas, a superb artist in human relations, used this technique. He gave you confidence, inspired you with courage and faith, "'For example, I spent a weekend with Mr. and Mrs. Thomas, "'and on Saturday night I was asked to sit in on a friendly bridge game "'before a roaring fire. "'Bridge? Oh, no, 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 not me. "'I knew nothing about it. "'The game had always been a black mystery to me. "'No, no, impossible.' "'Why, Dale, it's no trick at all,' Lowell replied. "'There's nothing to bridge except memory and judgment. "'You've written articles on memory. "'Bridge will be a cinch for you. It's right up your alley.' And presto, almost before I realized what I was doing, I found myself for the first time at a bridge table, all because I was told I had a natural flair for it and the game was made to seem easy. Speaking of bridge reminds me of Eli Culbertson, whose books on bridge have been translated into a dozen languages and have sold more than a million copies. Yet he told me he never would have made a profession out of the game if a certain young woman hadn't assured him that he had a flair for it. When he came to America in 1922, he tried to get a job teaching in philosophy and sociology, but he couldn't. Then he tried selling coal, and he failed at that. Then he tried selling coffee, and he failed at that, too. He had played some bridge, but it had never occurred to him in those days that someday he would teach it. He was not only a poor card player, but he was also very stubborn. He asked so many questions and held so many post-mortem examinations that no one wanted to play with him. Then he met a pretty bridge teacher, Josephine Dillon, fell in love and married her. She noticed how carefully he analyzed his cards and persuaded him that he was a potential genius at the card table. It was that encouragement and that alone, Culbertson told me, that caused him to make a profession of bridge. Clarence M. Jones, one of the instructors of our course in Cincinnati, Ohio, told how encouragement and making faults seem easy to correct completely changed the life of his son. In 1970, my son David, who was then 15 years old, came to live with me in Cincinnati. He had led a rough life. In 1958, his head was cut open in a car accident, leaving a very bad scar on his forehead. In 1960, his mother and I were divorced, and he moved to Dallas, Texas with his mother. Until he was 15, he'd spent most of his school years in special classes for slow learners in the Dallas school system. Possibly because of the scar, school administrators decided that he was brain injured and could not function at a normal level. He was two years behind his age group, so he was only in the seventh grade. Yet he did not know his multiplication tables, added on his fingers, and could barely read. There was one positive point. He loved to work on radio and TV sets. He wanted to become a TV technician. I encouraged this and pointed out that he needed math to qualify for the training. I decided to help him become proficient in this subject. We obtained four sets of flashcards, multiplication, division, addition, and subtraction. As we went through the cards, we put the correct answers in a discard stack. When David missed one, I gave him the correct answer and then put the card in the repeat stack until there were no cards left. I made a big deal out of each card he got right, particularly if he had missed it previously. Each night, we would go through the repeat stack until there were no cards left. Each night, we timed the exercise with a stopwatch. I promised him that when he could get all the cards correct in eight minutes with no incorrect answers, we would quit doing it every night. This seemed an impossible goal to David. The first night it took 52 minutes. The second night, 48. Then 45, 44, 41. Then under 40 minutes. We celebrated each reduction. I'd call in my wife and we would both hug him and we'd dance a jig. At the end of the month, he was doing all the cards perfectly in less than eight minutes. When he made a small improvement, he would ask to do it again. He had made the fantastic discovery that learning was easy and fun. Naturally, his grades in algebra took a jump. It is amazing how much easier algebra is when you can multiply. He astonished himself by bringing home a B in math. That had never happened before. Other changes came with almost unbelievable rapidity. His reading improved rapidly, and he began to use his natural talents in drawing. Later in the school year, his science teacher assigned him to develop an exhibit. He chose to develop a highly complex series of models to demonstrate the effect of levers. It required skill not only in drawing and model making, but in applied mathematics. The exhibit took first prize in his school science fair and was entered in the city competition and won third prize for the entire city of Cincinnati. That did it. Here was a kid who had flunked two grades, who had been told he was brain-damaged, who had been called Frankenstein by his classmates, and told his brains must have leaked out of the cut on his head. Suddenly he discovered he could really learn and accomplish things. The result? From the last quarter of the eighth grade all the way through high school, he never failed to make the honor roll. In high school he was elected to the National Honor Society, Once he found learning was easy, his whole life changed. If you want to help others to improve, remember Principle 8. Use encouragement. Make the fault seem easy to correct. Chapter 9. Making People Glad to Do What You Want Back in 1915, America was aghast. For more than a year, The nations of Europe had been slaughtering one another on a scale never before dreamed of in all the bloody annals of mankind. Could peace be brought about? No one knew. But Woodrow Wilson was determined to try. He would send a personal representative, a peace emissary, to counsel with the warlords of Europe. William Jennings Bryan, Secretary of State. Bryan, the peace advocate, longed to go he saw a chance to perform a great service and make his name immortal. But Wilson appointed another man, his intimate friend and advisor, Colonel Edward M. House, and it was House's thorny task to break the unwelcome news to Brian without giving him offense. Brian was distinctly disappointed when he heard I was to go to Europe as the peace emissary, Colonel House records in his diary. He said he had planned to do this himself. I replied that the president thought it would be unwise for anyone to do this officially and that his going would attract a great deal of attention and people would wonder why he was there. You see the intimation? House practically told Bryan that he was too important for the job, and Bryan was satisfied. Colonel House, adroit, experienced in the ways of the world, was following one of the important rules of human relations. Always make the other person happy about doing the thing you suggest. Woodrow Wilson followed that policy even when inviting William Gibbs McAdoo to become a member of his cabinet. That was the highest honor he could confer upon anyone, and yet Wilson extended the invitation in such a way as to make McAdoo feel doubly important. Here's the story in McAdoo's own words. Wilson said that he was making up his cabinet and that he would be very glad if I would accept a place in it as Secretary of the Treasury. He had a delightful way of putting things. He created the impression that by accepting this great honor, I would be doing him a favor. Unfortunately, Wilson didn't always employ such tact. If he had, history might have been different. For example, Wilson didn't make the Senate and the Republican Party happy by entering the United States in the League of Nations— Wilson refused to take such prominent Republican leaders as Elihu Root or Charles Evans Hughes or Henry Cabot Lodge to the peace conference with him. Instead, he took along unknown men from his own party. He snubbed the Republicans, refused to let them feel that the League was their idea as well as his, refused to let them have a finger in the pie, and as a result of this crude handling of human relations, wrecked his own career, ruined his health, shortened his life, caused America to stay out of the League and altered the history of the world. Statesmen and diplomats aren't the only ones who use this make-a-person-happy-to-do-the-things-you-want-them-to-do approach. Dale O. Ferrier of Fort Wayne, Indiana, told how he encouraged one of his young children to willingly do the chore he was assigned. One of Jeff's chores was to pick up pears from under the pear tree so the person who was mowing underneath wouldn't have to stop and pick them up. He didn't like this chore, and frequently it was either not done at all or it was done so poorly that the mower had to stop and pick up several pears that he'd missed. Rather than have an eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation about it, one day I said to him, Jeff, I'll make a deal with you. For every bushel basket full of pears you pick up, I'll pay you one dollar. But after you're finished, for every pear I find left in the yard, I'll take away a dollar. How does that sound? As you'd expect, he not only picked up all of the pears, but I had to keep an eye on him to see that he didn't pull a few off the trees to fill up some of the baskets. I knew a man who had to refuse many invitations to speak, invitations extended by friends, invitations coming from people to whom he was obligated, and yet he did it so adroitly that the other person was at least contented with his refusal. How did he do it? Not by merely talking about the fact that he was too busy and to this and to that. No, after expressing his appreciation of the invitation and regretting his inability to accept it, he suggested a substitute speaker. In other words, he didn't give the other person any time to feel unhappy about the refusal. He immediately changed the other person's thoughts to some other speaker who could accept the invitation. Gunther Schmidt, who took our course in West Germany, told of an employee in the food store he managed who was negligent about putting the proper price tags on the shelves where the items were displayed. This caused confusion and customer complaints. Reminders, admonitions, confrontations with her about this did not do much good. Finally, Mr. Schmidt called her into his office and told her he was appointing her supervisor of price tag posting for the entire store, and she would be responsible for keeping all of the shelves properly tagged. This new responsibility and title changed her attitude completely, and she fulfilled her duties satisfactorily from then on. Childish? Eh, Perhaps. But that is what they said to Napoleon when he created the Legion of Honor and distributed 15,000 crosses to his soldiers and made 18 of his generals marshals of France and called his troops the Grand Army. Napoleon was criticized for giving toys to war-hardened veterans, and Napoleon replied, Men are ruled by toys. This technique of giving titles and authority worked for Napoleon, and it will work for you. For example, a friend of mine, Mrs. Ernest Gent of Scarsdale, New York, was troubled by boys running across and destroying her lawn. She tried criticism, she tried coaxing, neither worked. Then she tried giving the worst sinner in the gang a title and a feeling of authority. She made him her detective and put him in charge of keeping all trespassers off her lawn. That solved her problem. Her detective built a bonfire in the backyard, heated an iron red-hot, and threatened to brand any boy who stepped on the lawn. The effective leader should keep the following guidelines in mind when it's necessary to change attitudes or behavior. 1. Be sincere. Do not promise anything that you cannot deliver. Forget about the benefits to yourself and concentrate on the benefits to the other person. 2. Know exactly what it is you want the other person to do. 3. Be empathetic. Ask yourself what it is the other person really wants. 4. Consider the benefits that person will receive from doing what you suggest. Five, match those benefits to the other person's wants. And six, when you make your request, put it in a form that will convey to the other person the idea that he personally will benefit. We could give a curt order like this, John, we have customers coming in tomorrow, and I need the stock room cleaned out. So sweep it out, put the stock in neat piles on the shelves, and polish the counter. Or we could express the same idea by showing John the benefits he will get from doing the task. John, we have a job that should be completed right away. If it's done now, we won't be faced with it later. I'm bringing some customers in tomorrow to show our facilities. I'd like to show them the stock room, but it is in poor shape. If you could sweep it out, put the stock in neat piles on the shelves, and polish the counter, it would make us look efficient and you will have done your part to provide a good company image. Will John be happy about doing what you suggest? Probably not very happy, but happier than if you had not pointed out the benefits. Assuming you know that John has pride in the way his stockroom looks and is interested in contributing to the company image, he will be more likely to be cooperative. It will also have been pointed out to John that the job would have to be done eventually, and by doing it now he won't be faced with it later. It is naive to believe you will always get a favorable reaction from other persons when you use these approaches, but the experience of most people shows that you are more likely to change attitudes this way than by not using these principles. And if you increase your successes by even a mere 10%, you have become 10% more effective as a leader than you were before. And that is your benefit. People are more likely to do what you would like them to do when you use Principle 9. Make the other person happy about doing the thing you suggest. In a nutshell, be a leader. A leader's job often includes changing your people's attitudes and behavior, Some suggestions to accomplish this. Principle 1. Begin with praise and honest appreciation. Principle 2. Call attention to people's mistakes indirectly. Principle 3. Talk about your own mistakes before criticizing the other person. Principle 4. Ask questions instead of giving direct orders. Principle 5. Let the other person save face. Principle six, praise the slightest improvement and praise every improvement. Be hearty in your approbation and lavish in your praise. Principle seven, give the other person a fine reputation to live up to. Principle eight, use encouragement. Make the fault seem easy to correct. Principle nine, make the other person happy about doing the thing you suggest. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio.